Welcome to the War Room. Ryan Ray here reminding you that this show is listener supported at warroommedia.com. You can sign up for the free option, but if you want to support the show, that is where you do it. And oh, by the way, we will be rolling out YouTube episodes, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. Again, warroommedia.com is where you stay up to date with everything, communicate with me, see all of the past episodes, warroommedia.com. Now, let's get to the show. David, welcome to the War Room. Thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay. Well, I'm excited to have you on. I've seen you uh, out and about and around talking about uh, your book, The Pale Face, The Lie, for some time now. Um, and so it's, it's it's great to get you on. It's um, it's won awards, I believe, and kind of kind of gotten a lot of recognition from from this book. Did you know it was going to be such a success yeah. when you sat down to write it? I did not. Um, you know, it's first time author. I've always wanted to be a writer, and I had a good life in business. But um, so, got to give my publisher uh, Sandra Jonas a lot of credit. But I think the thing that I knew. <clears throat> was that the story was remarkable. I never saw myself as overly remarkable, but I saw what I went through and what my siblings went through is quite remarkable. So I, I, my, my real goal, Ryan, was could I capture the story the way it deserved to be captured and get out of my own way and just capture the story? And with some help, I think I was able to do that. If, just if you look at, you know, the Indian part, which is pretty amazing. And in fact, I'm born nine months after dad gets out of San Quentin for a crime that could have gotten him to death penalty, <clears throat> mentally ill mom who he wanted rid of, and just on and on. You know, I remember from my very first memory, um, when my dad said, we have to get rid of your mother, because if you grow up like her, you'll be crazy too. From that minute until <clears throat> my late 20s, the, the action never stopped. It's just like every day brought a new challenge and it just never stopped. So I thought that if whoever captured the story could, could turn it into something, but no, I, I had no idea that it would be successful like this at all. Okay. So let, let's, let's set the table there. Cause you, <laughs> you touched on a few interesting things. You're living on an Indian reservation. Your dad yes. was in San Quentin. And he said he's got to get rid of your mother. Did, did I get all three of those right? Yeah. <clears throat> so what was your dad in San Quentin for? Well, dad, dad, um, <clears throat> he liked beating up people and <laughs> trying to kill them. <clears throat> he and his accomplice thought they killed the guy. Uh, they, they beat him to what they thought was his death. <clears throat> and the only reason he didn't die was that his wife thought there was something wrong. And she found him minutes before he would have bled out and died. <clears throat> so it would have been premeditated. Um, my dad was one of the luckiest people in the world, and he never thought he was lucky. <clears throat> he had more opportunity and got away with more things <clears throat> than the next hundred people you could name. <clears throat> but he got extremely lucky uh, when the guy lived. <clears throat> the guy never saw again. You know, his, both his eyes were that impaired, never really walked. <clears throat> bedridden but he didn't die and the fact that he didn't die um stopped my dad from getting um sentenced for premeditated murder wow and was your you said your dad liked to beat people up was he 
become remorseful about that at some point in his life, or was that he's kind of a hardened criminal who um, never changed his ways, if you will? Dad never had an ounce of remorse in him. At the very end of his life, I was his caretaker the last year, which uh, which the readers would get to. And you know, I decided to treat him the way I wish I was treated. I pretended he was a good dad at the end and just tried to be a good son. And we had a lot of conversations about San Quentin, about guys that talk about murdering people in the in the yard, the you know, the San Quentin yard, and lots of conversation. And right at the end of his life, I asked him straight up, do you have regrets? Anything that you think you did? And he said, now there are a few bastards I wish I got that I miss. <laughs> so we both laughed. And I said, you know, Dad, you're going out the way you want to <clears throat> on your own terms with no remorse, no regret. I said, I, remarkable to me that you feel this way, but you do. <clears throat> and he just said, yeah, I do. Um, there is no God, there is no heaven, there is no remorse. You you get what you get, you take what you want, and you live by your own rules. You set your own code, and he believed that entirely. Wow. <laughs> wow. What's it like growing up with a kind of a hardened father like that? Um, extremely hard. I mean, the thing is, and you throw in a mentally ill mom who's just very weak, weak as a kitten. <clears throat> the thing that um, that I did very early on, sort of the one of the four kids that <clears throat> I studied him so that if he was about to do something really stupid or violent, if there was always a moment you might be able to stop him by distracting him or something. <clears throat> and he had what I call the YV. And so if you look at right on your forehead between your eyes, there's a blood vessel that comes down. And when dad was extremely angry, that thing bulged like a garden hose and his eyes bugged out like a Volkswagen Beetle. If he had that YV, <laughs> um, you, it was too late. But if you could catch him before extreme anger took over and say, hey, it's not worth it, or let's go do something else or think about something different than what you're about to do, there was a chance to to stop him, but once once the blood vessel bulged and the eyes were out, it, it, there was nothing stopping him. <clears throat> but um, so I had two goals: if I could stop him, I did. But when I saw him like that, to try to get my brother sisters out of the way <clears throat> and try to figure out what kind of an exit strategy there might be. But early mm -hmm. early in my life, I started thinking like that without even knowing I was thinking like that. Right. Um, living with him was you're just you woke up every day and say I hope I get through this day because because he could do anything <clears throat> extremely volatile um, has chip on his shoulder like you can't imagine <clears throat> and just he was hair trigger temper and it he could go from smiling to explosive in in one second <clears throat> Now, you mentioned your mother briefly there, but contrast that personality with your mother's. The alpha and the omega personalities. Mom, <clears throat> very weak, always sad, always crying. <clears throat> um, the entire world was against her. She's just a very weak and, and sad person, uh, a broken person. <clears throat> and um, my dad had very little tolerance for it. 
but there was nothing he did that would make my mom leave. So there was kind of that until he left her. And when he did leave her, he tried to kill her. But um, they were precise opposites. Yeah. And there was no middle ground. Like they, there was no reasoning. There was no, the only time they ever came together. And this is sad because my mom has a good heart. But she, if we did something bad and he came home, she would love to tell on us because it was the only time she felt like she had any power with my dad and his punishments were buckle into the belt beatings until you couldn't move. And I really resented my mom for doing it until I understood she feels important to him at no other time. Does she ever feel important to him? So, um, but she she is more of a kid than we were. By the time I was six, I was basically telling her what she needed to be doing. I was interviewing um, someone today um, who was, um, her mom was murdered in 1985. Um, There's domestic abuse, um, you know, stuff like that. And, and talking about this, that era, I was born in 85. So obviously no role other than research. Can't, don't, don't know what that era was like. Right. But you're talking about, living in that environment and what options were available, how were the conversations around abuse and, and stuff like that, alcoholism. Um, so that's 85. Uh, I think she's in Michigan. You're on an Indian reservation. What was the conversations? What was their outlets for help or places to go? Like, What, what was that environment like? Zero. So I grew up um, 50s, 60s in um, Indian reservation country. We went to the first integrated public school. So the kids that I went to school with, their parents were boarding school kids that the Bureau of Indian Affairs rounded up, shaved their heads, made them eat lye soap. And every morning when they woke up, they they were told we have to kill the Indian to save the man. They literally hated what what, what the white folks had done to them and legitimately so. I don't... So going to school with their kids was like the least fun you can have. And we lived on a part of the reservation where only Indians lived, which, you know, was sort of segregated. There was very few whites that lived on a reservation, either worked in the Indian health care system or Bureau of Indian Affairs. But we lived right in the center of where you're not supposed to live. And so I think probably the greatest accomplishment of my life was living there long enough for the Indians to treat me like I was exactly one of them. The word Crow and Navajo is Gagi. And once I was called that, I was on the other side. But the years leading up to that, um, you got beat up 10 times a day. I mean, the hardest thing I did, and my brother and I was walk to school and back that half mile each way, you're going to have four or five serious fist fights. You're going to be jumped. You're going to be, you know, just have the the crap beat out of you. And then you go home to a dad that's built like a National Football League linebacker. And he says, well, just fight him, knock him, beat him up. And you're like, some of them are four years older than me in my grade. You know, um, one of my eighth grade classmates had two kids and a wife, for Christ's sake. I mean, it was just amazing. <laughs> are you serious? I'm completely serious. So on, a, wow. on the reservation then. Wow. You had to go to school if you're an Indian till you hit ninth grade. And then you, you didn't have to. They let let it go. 
but I was with kids who had been held back three or four years. Their their parents spoke no English. <clears throat> they were not exposed to any, what you would call higher learning of any sort. <clears throat> and they were held back. And so it's always the smallest and by far the youngest. But when you hit eighth grade, ninth grade, you had kids there that just, they probably came to school just for the hot meal. Mm-hmm. So as a so it is extremely difficult. Um, I, if the white teacher, there were three kinds of teachers there. There were white teachers that came for one or two years because you could get hired, and this was a, teachers had a hard time getting jobs then. Apparently, <clears throat> a lot of them came from Oklahoma, and there was, and they would come, they would check their box one or two years, and then they could go get a better job. <clears throat> then you had what I call the hippie type. You know, a reservation is Shangri-La, Mother Love, you know, Father Earth, Mother Sky and all that. And, of course, it took them about 30 seconds to figure out this was the exact opposite of that. What they had entered was third world hell. But they generally would stay at least one year, fill their contract. And then you had a handful of Navajo teachers who'd been through the boarding school system were teaching, Right. And they weren't mean, but if a Navajo kid could kill you in front of them, they wouldn't do anything about it. <clears throat> so it was really a very messed up system. If I took you to where I grew up, the part of Fort Defiance, Arizona, where I and I blindfolded you, <clears throat> and I walked you no more than a quarter mile from any road, a dirt road, and, and said, open your eyes, you wouldn't know what country you're in. You might think you're in Afghanistan or something. So the poverty there is still really bad. But when I was a kid, it was atrocious. You know, you had a lot of people still living in Hogan's uh, five-sided mud houses. Um, The trailers that they have are these little rusted out trailers. You're you're talking extreme poverty. And um, you're also talking about people that... Anytime you have that kind of financial distress, you have every issue, domestic abuse, alcohol, you name it, <clears throat> like a rural ghetto. So there there were no resources whatsoever. And we, I knew <clears throat> it was hopeless from the start. Um, you know, one of the things when you grow up like I did that you, first thing you want to get rid of is false hope. <clears throat> is mm. Having the false hope that somebody's going to bail you out or this is going to work out is the worst thing you can do. Because you're setting yourself up for um, failure and feeling defeated over and over and over again. So we knew early on that we had to keep dad had to stay out of prison and he he had to stop from beating us to death. And we had to somehow get through the school system till we got to be adults and got out of there. Okay, if you said this, I missed it, but. Why was your family, or is there is your dad or your mom or both or like so you 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 said that you're the white kid at school. So were your parents Native American or like how how did you guys end up there? So when the reader reads the pale face lie, the pale the the title is the answer to your story. So to explain this, one when I was a kid, it's not true now. Any Anglo willing to work on an Indian reservation could get hired that day. And if they didn't shoot their boss to death, they were promoted by the end of the day. No one wanted to work there that wasn't Indian. And so dad went to an Indian reservation for two reasons. 
one, he would have to check the violent felony box. And if you're an employer, you know, there's just, you might think people are re- rehabilitated around certain things they've done. <clears throat> when you try to kill someone with your bare hands, that's not something, you know, I'm like, no, I, I think I'll take a risk on somebody else. <clears throat> so he could lie about that on the reservation. He dummied up references. They never checked. <clears throat> this is way pre-internet, pre-anything. So he was able to pull that off. <clears throat> He's a very bright guy. And he also figured his accomplice who wanted to kill him <clears throat> or betraying him. Um, my dad wasn't afraid of his accomplice. He wasn't afraid of anybody, <clears throat> but he's afraid of an ambush. So he figured if he went to an Indian reservation, this guy would never find him. <clears throat> and he didn't have, he could lie about the violent felony thing. So that's how we wound up there. <clears throat> The idea of Indian, which is throughout the whole book, is much more complicated. So dad was full-blown psychopath for sure. And he grew up in Oklahoma, Texas, right around the Red River. So most of his people were from Texas, just across the, just across the river from, um, from Oklahoma, Gainesville, Texas. And so, um, Dad's parents, and and I hope you'll forgive this language. <clears throat> this is what hit, were white trash dust bowl Okies, <clears throat> and that part of Texas, they their farms blew away. <clears throat> it was the Great Depression. They had no education. When they went to California, California kicked them out, and they had to come back. <clears throat> they had nothing, and uh, Dad had a very difficult life, an extreme poverty life. And he imagined what he did was create a fake persona that uh, there were Cherokee Indians all around that area still are that he somehow was a Cherokee and it gave him something to be proud of because he was not proud of being a crow. He was very much not proud of his parents. He hated them. So he created this persona and he carried it out throughout his entire life He, he imagined Cherokees as super people, lighter complected, you know, not not forced on a reservation. They these super genius people who were picked on, who weren't treated right through history. And he could put himself into that persona. And it was the only thing he really had any pride in. And I could always tell when he was lying Dad would tell a lot of truth and he told a lot of lies. And I'm not even sure he knew when he was doing it, but you could tell his tells were his voice would get louder. His eyes would light up. He'd puff his chest out. And so whenever he was telling the Cherokee stories, all of those things became front and center. Right. And so I always knew he was lying, but what are you going to do? How are you going to challenge him? And I did challenge him much later in life and I regretted it because I, I did all the genealogy work and, you know, the crows are really Scottish, English. He came over from, from Northern Europe and wound up in Texas before this country was a country, right? Well, but, well, um, why did you regret challenging on him, uh, him on it later on? Say again? Why did you regret challenging him on his lies later on? Well, what, what I didn't understand or, and I should have, is that this was as much a part of him as his right arm. 
So when I showed him the genealogy and I said, hey, look, why are you making all this crap up? It was the equivalent of telling him he was nothing. Mm -hmm. And I knew that and I just got sick of it and I shouldn't have. He got really angry. Let's fight to the death. We'll see who's the real Cherokee here, which is just his way of handling things. And uh, I just ignored it after that. We never brought it up. And he would continue to tell the same kind of stories about his Cherokee heritage. And, it, it, you know, understanding a psychopath is a very interesting thing. <clears throat> Scary. But if it's your own parent and understanding them is integral to survival, <clears throat> which it was, you really, really study it. And so I studied dad's body language his inflections with his voice even the way he would move his head and when the whole Cherokee thing when any anytime he wanted to talk about being a Cherokee his entire body transformed it's interesting because I've been around people who are I don't know if it's a compulsive liar I don't know what the right term is here but they, they lie all the time all the time um, and so there's there's people like that I've been around who will lie about everything. And then I've been around people who will lie about just certain facets of of their life. And so they're they're kind of but 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 their lies are equally fraudulent, but not yeah. everything, but on this on these handful of subjects, they always lie. Yeah. And it becomes weird because as you mentioned, confronting them, you, you do begin to wonder, okay, first, am I crazy? <laughs> like am I am I remembering this right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure this is how it went down. You go talk to someone else. Yes, that's what happened. Okay, good. Then, like, at the end of the day, why can't we just, like, okay, if it's a murder, I get it. You might want to lie to cover it up. But on the trivial details here, um, why are we dying on these heels to protect the lie? Uh, that, and, and the best I've ever seen someone who's like that do is they'll play the I forgot, or I must have misremembered game. And even then you're like, I'm not sure I believe that. Right. And so, but, but you're right though about the tales. You can kind of tell when they start to get in that lying mood. Like, oh, here, here, here it comes. There's a pattern to the speech. There's uh, a way they yeah. change. And it's, it's really weird. It's almost like playing poker with them. You go, okay, now we're in la la land. We're not sure how much of this is true anymore. Exactly. And one, one of the things that, um, I studied um, a lot of prison stories and went back to San Quentin and talked to the warden, not dad's warden, of course, this is decades later, and um, talked to a handful of prisoners as part of a group that had been eligible for parole for, parole for like 30 years, but governors weren't, were are reluctant if they committed murder and um no governor probably wants that on him that he released one in case somebody does something sure. wrong. But one of the things you read about, hear about, and that these gentlemen spoke about, and dad did all the time, no one is guilty of any crime they committed. Every prison, particularly maximum security, have a bunch of innocent people locked up. <laughs> I mean, that, that they didn't do it, for Christ's sake. And one of the things dad would tell me, I, I could trick him into telling me prison stories or I could say something that would get him to say 
you know, like I understand why there's Miranda rights, because if I can interview a prisoner, I could get him to spill their guts every time because I grew up knowing how to do this. Mm-hmm. But dad would say things like, well, we would be in the yard, which is prison recreation area, <clears throat> anything but recreation. You know, those are terrible places. And these guys would brag about murders they committed, <clears throat> big crimes they committed. They're never caught for them. Right. But then they get around to their own crime. Well, I didn't do the thing they had me in here for. <clears throat> and it's part of the incongruity. I think that in when there's a psychotic piece to pathological lying, <clears throat> and I think a huge chunk of it is not wanting to be you. <clears throat> you don't want to be yourself. You want to be somebody else. You want to imagine life <clears throat> as something other than what it is. And you want to see yourself as a hero, a martyr, um, you know, whatever it is. And you finally convince yourself that these things are true Mm -hmm. or you convince yourself that projecting that to people you're talking to makes you more important to them. Mm -hmm. And of course, it doesn't because you're a smart guy. And so when somebody comes up and starts telling you about you know, the 50 guys they beat to death with their bare hands and the time that they, you know, caught a bear and (laughs) you start saying, okay, enough. But if you don't call them on it, they won't shut up. Now, what are they thinking when they're away from you? One of the great mysteries, how does the human (laughs) brain really work? Well, and and to your point though, I've often wondered, I'm probably a little bit more direct with people than most I've been, I've been known to be too blunt, but I've wondered if more people would not allow that kind of nonsensicalness to go on. I wonder if that would be better for the people who are lying because obviously people that, that, that live like this, they find friends who at least are some are tricked by their stories. Some don't care. And so they can find a group that will allow them to operate in this way. And that, and to me, I've wondered if you could get that person remove him or her from anyone who would just listen to the nonsense, if it would actually be good for them, like at some point, would they finally stop? Like that's also the unanswered question, I guess, too. Well, I have two thoughts for you. I think people, people who befriend and stay friends with people like that have a loose screw themselves, right? Because I'm not going to go up and tell a huge lie to a guy like you. If I did it once and you kept, you call me on it, <clears throat> we're not having that second conversation, right? right? Right. But the other thing is, dad was the kind of guy, if you challenge him, he'd, he'd want to fight you. Yeah, that's true. There's a threat <clears throat> but, of violence, yeah. but as far as the sort of um, benign liar, <clears throat> I mean, for me, whenever somebody starts that, I just say, you know, I'm busy doing whatever else and I'm out of there. And I'm sure you do too. <clears throat> it's like, okay, I've had enough of this. And, you know, I call it the BS meter. Mm-hmm. I think most honest people, um, Will Rogers used to say, you can never cheat a truly honest man. I think that most honest, good people, BS meter is pretty good. And um, if somebody you really trust tells you a story that sounds like it's too much, Say, you know, this almost sounds like too much. <clears throat> Explain it. And they either will or they'll say, you know, maybe it wasn't like that. <laughs> but point being, um, 
honest people of goodwill don't have a lot of tolerance for this and you're a perfect example yeah well it's yeah i mean obviously we all get duped at times but it's 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 just it is a fascinating thing just to be around people like that and you're just like i mean listen we all embellish stories right so we all get caught up in the moment mm-hmm. and, you know, so the, so there's there's room for for that or you might absolutely or there's you know me and you on this podcast someone says how the podcast go oh well he told this story so we we might have a different perspective of what happened and so those are there's there's a realm of agreeableness but but we're talking about is 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 this really kind of um, outside of normalcy and so but going growing up and so you had to fight the abuse from your uh, your peers even though they're married with kids (laughs) your other students and and your dad um and then you, your dad's a, a, a perpetual, a habitual liar. I mean, how often did you have to question your sanity? Every minute of every day. I mean, there's, I mean, you know, there were, there's one story in my book that, <clears throat> to me, is because the reader, your the listener won't have heard, won't have read this. So I'm going to be careful with it. But <clears throat> my dad locked my mother out. I mean, the year before he basically abandoned her. <clears throat> One day he forced me to lock her out. So she comes home at night from it's cold and <clears throat> you don't live here anymore. You can't come in. And this one was one of the one of the really bad things he did <clears throat> to me because she begged and cried and everything else. Well, a couple, three hours later, um, there was a window in our in the house we lived in at the time where you walked up the steps. You could actually open the window to what was the family room, <clears throat> you know, because the steps were so steep, it actually went right up to the base of that window and it was unlocked and it was easy to open. So my mother opened it, went in. <clears throat> this was the very night that I locked her out um, with my dad forcing me to do it. The next morning I wake up, my dad and she are at breakfast. <clears throat> my siblings are there. My mother looks up at me and said, why, why did you lock me out? My dad says, yeah, what's wrong with you? And you're like, oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, what part of this makes any sense? Mm-hmm. But over time, none of it makes sense, right? <clears throat> and you you question yourself, but you also, I think, hopefully smart enough to see yourself outside of this <clears throat> and know that this this is very, very wrong. Dysfunction doesn't even get at it. But it's hard because, you know, you're, you're, you look up to your parents, your reality is your parents. I like to say childhood is a city you can never leave. Um, and if it's bad enough, you're going to have to really work to leave it, which, which I put myself in that category and was able to mostly do that. But um, when you're hearing all kinds of things that absolutely are lies, don't make sense, <clears throat> It's hard. And, and and I it had a huge impact on my siblings and me. One of my more fundamental beliefs is <clears throat> you grow up in a in a family bad enough, you're you have one goal, and that's break the cycle. That's your only goal. <clears throat> in those situations, obviously nowhere near extreme as what you dealt with. The thing that's bothered me the most is person. That's the liar goes, talks to another person that I know other person that I know instantly believes these mythical stories without even ever coming to get any kind of verification. That's what, that's what's always bothered me about these situations is 
And so now you know that this person who, who flipped or whatever is no one you can trust because they're they're gonna, they're gonna get duped by anything. But but it's like wow, like what have I showed you about myself that you are <laughs> prone to believe? These crazy things. And so that's part of that self-doubt. I'm sure like, that's part of it because, you know, again, not, not on the scale that you dealt with it. But it's, it's like, man, like you, you should know me better than this. Yeah. Well, it's, it's not you, it's them. So I, another thing that I really believe is that somebody who makes up a lot of things all the time and has a loose relationship with the truth is also easy to fool. That um, fools want to believe what other fools say. And I'll go back to your basically honest and moral human being. <clears throat> you might trick them once. They they And people write me these letters about how do you ever learn to trust? <clears throat> you, you might really betray me. All good, honest people have been betrayed. <clears throat> and maybe more than once. But th- there's there's something about that. A really honest and good person will not like it. <clears throat> they won't feel the same way about you. Again, you're you're not going to fool them a second time. <clears throat> There's another thing. They have a really good internal barometer of right, wrong, <clears throat> and they immediately gravitate towards that. But liars tend to find liars, and they tend to lie to each other. And, <clears throat> you know, there's a whole world of this kind of nonsense that I, I think most people in the same world just stay away from. Yeah. And I, we both have friends like that or people in our lives. And like, they just, I keep them at arm's length. Two arms. So with that being said, you go back to write this book. How hard is it for you looking back? You did live through it, but I'm sure there's times where you have to think, okay, am I remembering this right? How do I like, <laughs> I'm sure there's a process of trying to delve through uh, A, it's traumatic, so that that that's a, just a whole different ball of wax you got to deal with. But then B, you're dealing with just compulsive liars. Well, Ryan, I kept notebooks from like age 10 on, and I, that's one oh, of the few things. Wow. But I'm going to tell you something. You've hit on something here. So my publisher, who's a good and honest moral person, so there's sometimes you just said, look, this, this is not believable. You're going to have to prove it. Right. So we probably spent a year and a half going back because I would always go back to every place I grew up and lived. And and I still do. It's one of my crazy things I do. And I've given a book to every person that lives in a house that I once lived in and told them my story. <laughs> Few of them have been already knocked down or condemned. But I had to prove it to her over and over again. <clears throat> and um One of the things that I'll say, and any person writes a memoir, you're not 100% right. How What happened to you and how you perceived it might be very different than a sibling who's older, younger. So, and I say that when I start, but one of the things I did to check myself when I would, I grew up in really rural, remote places. On the reservation, the little one of the houses I lived in is still there. Another one got knocked down, but it's a vacant lot now. I would talk to friends, childhood Indian friends that I still have, friends that I've known since fourth grade, third grade, and and say, hey, um, this is how I recall something. And this is what I'm going to say. 
and I had them read chapters. These are kids that I live with every minute of every day. Mm-hmm. And I did that all along the way. Um, I went back uh, to San Quentin, did Freedom of Information Acts on my dad, on inmates my dad mentioned. <clears throat> um, I have seven angels in the book, and I would go back and ask the angels. <clears throat> Two of them had deceased by the time I wrote the book. But the one, Mr. Koontz, all his kids are still alive and <clears throat> spoke with me. And I would check myself against that. It probably took, made the whole book process last three or four years longer than it would have. <clears throat> but then when I turned it over to my publisher, she did what you did. Say, oh, wait a minute. You're going to have to prove this. <laughs> and and I was fine with that. And, um, <clears throat> and I think it made it a better book. Um, <clears throat> The only thing I changed is my siblings' first names because I felt like, you know, and both sisters are married, so they have a different name. And I changed the name of the town in North Carolina where my dad tried to kill my stepmother because all of her relatives still live there and they would very quickly know where that town was. Other than that, um, I kept everything exactly the way I remember it as I saw it a lot of times in writing the book, I would go back to the specific place I lived at that time and write all those chapters there, either sitting in a car or on a bench or whatever. And I spent a ton of time um, questioning myself. And so I will say it's accurate, but I will also say, my memory is what my memory was and how I saw it Sure, was, was but I, I honestly believe this book is very accurate. Um, <clears throat> I think the thing that I'm proudest of, I mean, not know pride's the right word, <clears throat> capturing the mental illness of my mom and the psychopathy of my dad, <clears throat> I really understood them both. And I think I really, when you read the profile of my dad, I've had a lot of people tell me this. Wow, I have an exact image of what this was, who this guy is, what he did. And readers in prison, I get a lot of prison letters. You know, I grew up like you did. My dad was like your dad. I'm now I'm in prison because I couldn't do any better. I write everyone back, you know, yes, you can do better. You don't have to do that. You can learn. But they all say the same thing. You described your dad exactly right. You describe what a prisoner in a maximum security prison is like. We have cellmates that are just like this guy, right? And so that was hard, but I also think I got it because you talk about spending time with people. My childhood basically framed everything that would ever happen to me because it was escaping. It's been my only life goal. Right. So. So it's been quite a journey. It's been a good journey, but it took me such a long time to do this. You mentioned your siblings and uh, I'm sure those other relatives. Did they find the book to be therapeutic? First, it's interesting you say that they didn't want me to write it. and They got angry. My kids got angry on the other side when it came out and had a huge following and multiple languages and they're all happy about it now. I think as I told them, I, 
I revere my my siblings. They got through this <clears throat> probably better than I did. I don't know. Um, but I never saw myself as a victim. I didn't write this book, and this may be the biggest issue, to get even. <clears throat> I didn't write this book to turn myself into a Superman. I made a thousand mistakes. I mean, my publisher would read this and say, you're really putting yourself in a bad light here. And I said, we'll either write a fictional version of this or we'll tell the truth. But in telling the truth, my own words have to be there. And all of my failures have to be there. <laughs> Turns out, I think it's it's what made the book successful because people will read it and it's like, you you are no Superman. You're not like you're Rocky Balboa or you're <laughs> king of the world. I mean, you got knocked down a thousand times and you screwed up a thousand times. And the real answer to the to my own whatever limited success is just never quitting and getting to the other side <clears throat> and fundamentally breaking the pattern that I was raised in and trying to play forward every good thing that happened to me from the angels along the way and the good people along the way. <clears throat> but the strength of it is there's no, no one thing I did that you're going to just clap and go, oh, man, this guy's the greatest. He stood up against all these forces. <clears throat> really, I didn't. You know, it was very cumulative. A lot of times, there's a lot of things I'm ashamed of, a lot, a lot of guilt. <clears throat> and you have to fight through that, too, if you're going to break the cycle, if you're going to get to a better place. Okay. Um, the listeners can't see this, but I can see you on video. I'm 37, be 38. You look to be about the same age as me. So we're, we're, we're basically the same age. You're, you're still a young man. <laughs> I'm 70. <laughs> you look 38. So for people who can't say you look 38, you had me fooled. Okay. You I might've put you, I might've put you at 40. We're basically, so, but the perspective with life comes and there's, there's, there's a sense in which you hear people say, I went through something hard and I wouldn't change it for anything. And on sometimes I get that. I go, okay, I can get, I can get learning from the journey. Mm -hmm. On the other end of the spectrum, you go, you know, if you could go back with hindsight and you could change something, yes, you wouldn't have had that journey, but sometimes I'm not sure it's worth romanticizing all the journeys we have. Like there's a fine balance there, right? Because you, you can learn lessons, but I, also, I don't always want to say, hey, let's romanticize all the journeys because there's definitely some things that we just don't want people to go through. You, you said 70. Going back with hindsight, is there one or two things you wish, you know what, just just here, maybe a small tweak here. I could have responded better. I could have done this better. I could have changed this. Maybe it's a big thing. Is there something like that you look back and go, man, I wish I had that opportunity again? Brian, I would change the entire journey. I'd let you be me, and I'll just be a guy in Texas doing <laughs> room podcast. Um, now, I mean, you know, I'm grateful that I got through it. I, I think it's a very um, – one of the fellow authors I met along the way had a horrible life, right? I got to know him and his parents abandoned him because he was, he had this growth on his face that, and at the end of his book, he says, I wouldn't change anything, everybody. And I'm like, BS, BS, BS in my head. Of course you would change it. You want to grow up having your brain speed out on an Indian reservation when they don't want you there. And, you're afraid your dad will beat you to death every day and you've got a mentally ill mom, you're worried he's going to get killed. No, I, um, there's two, you know, one is I'm not going to pretend that I'm so proud that I went through it. I think it's a way of making you feel better about who you are. I feel good about who I am without having to say, I'm really glad I had this journey. 
thing too is I wish I had figured out <clears throat> the whole break the cycle thing. What I mean by that is positive self-image, like yourself, mm. <clears throat> love your life, happy. I didn't have any of that till I was probably early, early 50s. Um, I was broken inside. I, I think I was a kind person, good person, tried to be, but I was a mess, psychological mess, because <clears throat> I hadn't come to terms with any of this. So I wasted a lot of time um, kind of in my own morass. <clears throat> and there's two kinds of letters that I get. So I have more than 20,000 reviews on Goodreads, and it's almost 12,000 on Amazon. Well. And the two kinds of letters that upset me, I'll find an older person and I'll say, I grew up like you. I never learned to love. I never learned to trust. There's no intimacy in my life. I'm going to die alone. <clears throat> I'm like, you never were fortunate enough to go through a process. And it's difficult to undo the damage. <clears throat> what did one woman write? I'm fat. I'm stupid. I'm ugly. <clears throat> no, you've been told all that. Mm -hmm. you're told that when you're very young and now that you're older you still believe that <clears throat> and that's what psychopaths do to their kids and their families <clears throat> and so when i get a letter from somebody like that i'll write them and i'll say i'm really sorry that you feel that way i'm sure it's not true <clears throat> and there's someone for everyone and i and she said well i, I could never trust because i would be hurt again mm -hmm. well, good people get hurt all the time yeah. But what you do is learn from it, get smarter and move on and <clears throat> find somebody that's worthy. Right. Um, but a person who's broken doesn't do that. They think they deserve it. <clears throat> they think they can do no better. They don't think that the world offers them anything other than what they are. <clears throat> so I get a letter from a woman. My dad beat my mom. My husband beat me. <clears throat> it, cycles are hard to break. Alcoholism, poverty, <clears throat> domestic violence. There's a reason these cycles continue generation after generation in families. <clears throat> they can be extremely hard to break. So the other kind of letter that upsets me, and I've touched on it earlier, <clears throat> a prisoner will write, I was raised like you. And so <clears throat> now I'm in my third stint in the big house and my kids won't show up on my deathbed. I'm going to die alone. <clears throat> I'll write them back and I'll say, you know, you're in a deep hole. You had a lot of things go wrong, <clears throat> but you can not, you can serve out this particular sentence, make a bunch of really good decisions <clears throat> and not go back. You can support the mother of your kids. You can slowly but surely <clears throat> convince your children <clears throat> that you're a different man. There won't be anything easy about your journey. For every plus step, you're going to have four or five steps back and no one's going to believe you for a long, long time. <clears throat> because you're in it. but you want to end up with your children on your deathbed saying you're the greatest dad in the world it's unbelievable what you overcame <clears throat> that's your goal and so um whether it's lying to yourself lying to others not liking yourself <clears throat> and i helped teach an abnormal psychology class for a group that's working with orphans and I said, you have to understand, these kids probably hate themselves, don't know it. They had, cannot trust adults. These are, They have adults that broke them. <clears throat> and you're telling them everything's going to be fine, and they don't believe that. This is a big job. Mm -hmm. People don't undo the kinds of harm 
that people like my siblings and I went through easily. They they don't. And most people don't break it at all. <clears throat> no, that, that's a great reminder because there is the, you wake up, you get in the car, <laughs> you're driving to work and there's a head on collision and you, you know, you might kill someone or severely injure them and your life's changed. You're doing anything right. Just that day, something happened. Um, th- there are those moments, but there's a lot of things where it's a long, slow burn buildup. Yes. And there's damage done over a long period of time. And then there's yeah. this culmination that appears to be the worst thing. And I'm not saying it's not the worst thing, but, but, but you can't, you just can't undo this one thing. There's all of this stuff behind it. And so when you want to fix that, it's the same long, slow burn, probably twice as long, three times as long, whatever it might be. And so, there's there's the sense in which people want to change they want to change at a speed that's not commensurate with what they did leading up to that and that's and that's hard to grasp that's hard to grasp and, and you you can feel sympathy for someone who goes i'm ready to change but then you also say you know what great but you have to prove it more than just today this isn't you got in the car everything went well but for some reason you just happened to clip someone and it went bad this is years of, of people not tr- you're not trusting people doing people wrong it's gonna take years to get that back and it's why most people can't do it brian the um the thing that i feel bad about is that um if luckily for me there was whatever weakness i had there was sort of a psychological strength <clears throat> that i'm going to get through this right but if you're a person that maybe had more go wrong in their life or there's more that they couldn't overcome no matter how hard they tried you got a lot of people out there that want to get to the other side and they just can't figure out how to do it um i think that if you took all the psychiatrists all the prison reform people all the social workers and i've talked to lots of these people and put them all in a room the one thing that they would admit is that nurture nature. There's some people that can overcome anything, right? Could drop you naked in the middle of the Sahara Desert with no water, and in 24 hours you'd own a, you know, your own Kool-Aid stand and you'd be president of the United (laughs) States in six years. There are other kids that you put in a situation that's like that and they're crushed and they're never going to come out of it. And you know, what at what point does nature nurture turn over or what point is one more important than the other? <clears throat> I, I maintain psychiatrists and, and brilliant social workers don't know. <clears throat> I told one psychiatrist who was asking me some questions, said, I'll know more about, I knew more about psychiatry at 10 than you will when you die. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell you, you go through the storm I went through with the dad and mom like that. There's just things you know are true. And um, I just think this we're in a world, this discussion we're having is a very huge, important world. Why do people who seemingly normal become mentally ill over time? Why does a guy who isn't violent all at once get out a gun and start shooting his neighbors? Why does one kid see a challenge as something to overcome and another kid see as something that they can't overcome. It's very complicated stuff. Wish I knew the answers to all that, but I know it, but at least I know that it is complicated and I don't fault anybody for not breaking a tough cycle because 
way harder than than most people think. Okay. We are going to link to the book in the show notes, The Pale Face Lie. You also have your website, which is davidcrowauthor.com. Anywhere else you want us to send people to or any new projects you have coming up? No, I think davidcrowauthor.com because it talks about my charity, is uh, which is a homeless shelter in Albuquerque, place I wish my mom could have gone when she went homeless. Um, I'm very grateful, Ryan, that you'll that you're telling people about the pale face lie, and I hope the readers will read it and enjoy it. I sure have enjoyed my time with you, um, and I think you have a very important podcast, and very um, with lots of good things to say. And it's been an honor to be on your show. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for listening today. Really, really appreciate it. If you could drop a five star review wherever you may be. We keep getting on great guests, and that's because you keep supporting that show. If you want to know more, go to warroommedia.com. Ever wonder if the deep state murdered President Kennedy? If Hillary Clinton is kidnapping babies? If the COVID-19 virus is part of a plot to turn your country into an evil dictatorship? Or if Tom Cruise is a shape-shifting alien reptile? Hi, my name is Michel Jacques Gagné. I'm a Canadian author, teacher, philosophical historian, and recovering conspiracist. I'm also the creator and host of the Paranoid Planet podcast, a monthly variety show that combines fun conversations, long-form interviews, thoughtful essays, film and book reviews, and a little bit of silliness on the subject of, well, you guessed it, conspiracy theories. So if you want to learn more about conspiracism, if you want to become a better critical thinker, or if you just enjoy listening to interesting conversations in an entertaining format, check out the Paranoid Planet podcast at www.paranoidplanet.ca. That's www.paranoidplanet.ca. Or anywhere you download your favorite podcasts. Until then, make sure you keep the blinds closed, avoid talking to strangers, and, just to be safe, avoid drinking the water out of the tap. You'll thank us for it later. But don't take my word for it. Ask this guy. What do you think tap water is? It's a gay bomb, baby. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. Do you understand that? Ugh, ugh, I'm serious crap. I'm sick of being social engineered. It's not funny.